Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the In Conversation With eClinical Medicine podcast. I'm Charlotte Robottom, Senior Editor at eClinical Medicine. Each month, we'll be interviewing one or more authors of a paper published in our journal to give them an opportunity to provide a deeper discussion of their research. We're here today with Professor Alistair McGowan to talk about antimicrobial stewardship and treatment options for skin infections caused by MRSA. This comes following the findings observed in their recent phase four trial that compared the safety and efficacy of two treatment regimens. Professor McGowan is a consultant in infection research at North Bristol NHS Trust and is Professor of Antimicrobial Therapeutics at the University of Bristol. He has led a mixed NHS academic research group in the area of antimicrobial chemotherapy for over 25 years and provides medical input into the National Antibiotic Assay Reference Laboratory at Southmead Hospital. He has a research interest in antibacterial, pharmacokinetics and dynamics, rapid diagnostics, antimicrobial resistance in the community and patient and public involvement in infection research. He's a former president of the British Society for Antimicrobial Chemotherapy, is a member of the BSAC Standing Committee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing and is UK representative on the European CDC Expert Committee, UCAST. Thank you for joining us, Professor McGowan, and welcome to the podcast. I'm really delighted to be able to talk to you today. So, your paper published in eClinical Medicine investigated whether combination treatment with minocycline and rifampicin is non-inferior to linezolid for the treatment of complicated skin and skin structure infections caused by MRSA. So let's begin with some background and rationale to the study. Could you summarise for our listeners what these MRSA-associated skin infections are, their prevalence, which groups are most at risk, and the consequences of these infections? Yes, well, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you for your very kind introduction as well. This study, as I said, uh, as you said, um, looks at uh, drugs in uh, MRSA skin and skin structure infection, and that, I suppose, is a subset of skin and skin structure infection generally, which is made up of a, a number of different conditions uh, causing infection in the skin, uh, sometimes infection secondary to ulcers, sometimes uh, cellulitis, sometimes infection secondary to uh, mild burns, for example. So there's quite a few different conditions there. However, they are sufficiently homogeneous that you can do studies on them, and that's why they're sort of bagged together. And listeners may be familiar with studies done on new antibiotics in this indication which is very uh, common when uh, companies are developing uh, gram-positive antibacterials. These infections are primarily caused by streptococci and staphylococci, including staph aureus. And then within that subset of staph aureus are resistant staph aureus, such as MRSA, which are resistant often to a wide range of different antibiotics. And the incidence then of MRSA really uh, depends on a lot of different factors, but probably the most important one is geography, i.e. where you are. So if you live in Europe, for example, the instance of MRSA is much higher in the Mediterranean basin than it is, for example, in Scandinavia. And here in the UK, uh, where I am, uh, we sit somewhere in the middle of that. 
but then that that broad incidence, if you like, is finessed a little bit by your status as a patient. So older patients will tend to have a higher risk of MRSA infection, and that's often because they've had prior antibiotics before, or they have multiple comorbidities, or they've been in contact with uh, healthcare. And all of those things will increase your MRSA risk uh, if you get skin and skin structure infection. And the consequences, well, I mean, they're very, very variable. Uh, Lots of patients have skin and skin structure infection in the community um, and are treated very successfully uh, by in, in primary care. Um, other patients, uh, a much a minority, will require hospital admission, and uh, obviously that has greater morbidity impacts and also greater costs for the healthcare system. So overall, the consequences are are quite variable and uh, probably uh, more severe and more worrisome in older patients than in younger patients. That was a really comprehensive kind of summary. So thank you for that. I understand that the consortium that funded the study is focused on providing non-inferiority evidence that lower cost older drugs might be effective against some specific pathogens that cause common infections such as MRSA. So could you tell us a little bit more about why this is so important and how this led to your specific trial? Yes, thank you. Um, I think this is quite important. Um, This is part of a much larger study, in fact, or a much larger research programme, which was funded by the European Union through the FP7 core to really meet the objectives that you've just outlined, i.e. use of older drugs to treat multiresistant bacteria. And I think everybody is aware that often in clinical practice, we use older drugs to treat certain infections. But when we sort of dive into the evidence base, there is a lack of randomized controlled trials. And so this program was put together very specifically to answer those questions. And in fact, the study that we're talking about today is one of uh, three studies that were funded one on the use of phosphomycin in urinary tract infection, another old antibiotic, and the other uh, was a a study of colistin in uh, bacteremia due to multidrug-resistant gram-negative bacteria. Um, And another important point about all of these studies was to try and use modern concepts of uh, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics to underpin the studies So in all of the studies that I've mentioned, and this one, there are other parts of the program where these drugs were assessed in preclinical models and where, for example, the pharmacokinetics of the drugs in these studies was was measured. And for example, the study that we're talking about today, uh, we have a a manuscript in preparation on, on the pharmacodynamics and trying to confirm the translational elements of preclinical models in these indications. And although people might think sometimes that this isn't terribly important if you've got an RCT, I think it is. And I'll just explain why. And and that is because it gives a scientific or an underlying rationale for the effectiveness of the drug that we're seeing. Um, So if we think that the drug is performing well in some preclinical situation and we have very favorable kinetics, we would expect to see a good result in the clinical trial. And, and when we do, we think, well, now we know why. So I think, I think all of those additional things in this program added to 
if you like, the bold results that we see in an RCT and that we're primarily talking about today. Yes, definitely. It's such an interesting approach. And like you say, it's kind of all encompassing. Thank you for that. So let's now talk about the specifics of the study. So could you tell us more about the study, who was enrolled and the key findings? Yes, yes. So um, the specifics of the study really as were as we have discussed already, that is that we were really interested in MRSA, skin and skin structure infection. And that is slightly different to a lot of st studies on skin and skin structure infection, which are based primarily on a syndrome, i.e. a clinical recognition of a clinical picture. Well, here we were really saying, well, yeah, we want that clinical picture, but we do want a specific pathogen. So this is a pathogen-related study, which is slightly different and slightly different to some of the other studies that have gone on. And that was quite influential in the way that we set up the study. I mentioned already that MRSA infection is more common in the Mediterranean basin. And so we went there to uh, Eastern Europe, to Greece and to Italy to see if we could uh, get uh, colleagues uh, and friends to uh, recruit patients for us. And we were quite successful in this in Greece. And most of our patients in the study, in fact, were uh, recruited through the Hellenic Infection Network. So they have done a lot of the heavy lifting here in, in, in terms of patient recruitment. And I'd just like to thank them for that again, sort of more publicly. The patients themselves, other than being in Greece and having MRSA, most of them were quite elderly. So if you look at the average age of our patients, it's probably about 10 or 15 years greater than the average patient in a skin and skin structure infection. And many of them had comorbidities. I think almost over 80% of them had more than one comorbidity. And some of them also received other antibiotics, but not for MRSA. They were all hospitalized. And one of the um, problems we had actually with this study was identifying patients with MRSA. And we had to put in quite a bit of infrastructure in terms of rapid culture and some molecular techniques to identify the patients rapidly to recruit them into the study. The key findings at the end of the day uh, were was that MR was the key findings at the end of the day was that minocycline and rifampicin was non-inferior to linezolid and that's what we expected um, and we also saw a difference in the adverse events where uh, although we didn't do a statistical comparison we did see a higher rate of adverse events in the linezolid arm than the minocycline and rifampicin arm. Great. That was a really good summary. Thank you for summarising that for our listeners. So like you say, given that non-inferiority was established and MRSA eradication rates were similar between the two therapies, what does this mean going forward for choosing between different treatment options? Well, our primary objective here was to add another option to the list of options. And there is a list of options here. Um, we're not saying that this is the best option. And we're not saying that this is the only option. I think what we're saying really is that compared to uh, linezolid, which is the most studied oral drug for uh, skin and skin structure infection and MRSA infection, this combination um, is non-inferior. 
You know, there are a whole lot of other potential drugs that can be used. There is data, for example, on septrin, which is another older drug, um, and some randomized controlled trials. Um, although I would just add a, a caveat to that, that um, there is also a study uh, in severe MRSA infection, which implies that septrin is not as good as vancomycin, for example. And then there are a range of newer drugs, usually injectable. Um, some have to be given in hospital. Some have very long half-lives, which means that they can be given as outpatient therapy. And there are also uh, now uh, studies of IV tetracyclines followed by oral tetracyclines compared to uh, oxaladinazones, which is the drug class that linazolid belongs to. So there's a whole lot of different options. There's not many studies just looking at oral therapy, I would say. So I think we're adding something in the sense that we are just looking at oral therapy. And we know that a lot of MRSA infections you don't need to use IV therapy. You can use oral therapy. And I think we're just putting another option on the table and improving the evidence base for that. And hopefully that makes prescribers more confident uh, in their use of um, tetracyclines to treat MRSA. Yes, definitely. And like you say, having that kind of oral therapy evidence base is so important. So following on from you mentioning that the overall rate of adverse events was higher for the linezolid group, although it wasn't significantly so, does this suggest that the combination therapy of minocycline and rifampicin might be preferable overall for certain patients because of those adverse events? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting finding, in fact. The, you, you would sort of think, and we thought when we designed this study, that you would have higher adverse events in a two-drug regime than a one-drug regime. You would sort of think, well, if drug A causes this proportion of adverse events and drug B causes that proportion of adverse events, then the total number of adverse events you're going to see is A plus B, and that is likely to be bigger than a single drug on its own. But that's really not what we saw here at all. And I suppose if you just think about it a little bit more deeply, it does depend on the particular drugs that you're using here. It's not that all drugs have the same adverse event profiles or the same proportion of adverse events. And I think this is really quite important. Um, and it's related to a factor which is not quite related to this study. And that is that there's quite a lot of non-clinical evidence that use of combination antibacterials, such as are used in TB, for example, reduces the rate of emergence of resistance in pathogens. We use similar approaches in HIV, for example. Um, and the concern with that is when we think about it in clinical practice, or one of the concerns in clinical practice, is that we would have a higher adverse event ratio, rate in patients who are taking two antibiotics for their infection rather than one. And this rather speaks against that, at least with this particular combination versus this comparator. So I think, I think it's important from that point of view. I mean, the rate of adverse events to linazolid is comparative to some other studies that have been published. So, But as I say, we didn't do statistics on this. It's Some of these adverse events are quite subjective in terms of patient reporting. So I, I think it is interesting, uh, but I think it's just one factor to think about, really, rather than something that drives you inevitably in a certain direction. 
And we know that minocycline has got certain adverse events, pulmonary adverse events, you know, raised intracranial pressure. Rifampicin, although is generally pretty safe uh, for long-term therapy, again, you can get some quite severe adverse events. So, uh, I mean, I, I think it, it really is very much a horses for courses type of decision that prescribers have to make. Yes, definitely. So let's now chat about the clinical cure rate. So the clinical cure rate for the linezolid group was lower than anticipated, as you mentioned in the study. What could be the reason for that? And do you think that that could potentially limit the interpretation of these findings? Yeah, I think we would we were a little bit surprised about this uh, that the cure rate was lower. Certainly, when we had done our original um, statistical, when we were doing the initial modelling of the study, we assumed that the response rate was going to be about ninety percent. In fact, it turned out to be uh, around about seventy to eighty percent. So we had to think about this, and I think a couple of factors are important. And I mentioned one earlier, and that is that our um, our patient group was older than many of the patient groups that have been reported. And also, many of the clinical studies that we looked at to power the study were sim- syndromic studies. So they were studies of skin and skin structure infection. And although people had tried to enrich those studies for MRSA, because that was a thing that uh, we were all interested in, in fact, maybe only a third or a half of the patients had MRSA. So that may have also been speaking to the comorbidities that these patients had. So my, my, my view is that we generally had an older population and we probably had a more comorbid population and that impacted on the response rates. So I, I think that's probably the answer as far as we can tell. Thank you for that. It's really important to discuss these things kind of afterwards to see, you know, the effect of certain cohorts on findings. So thank you for being so open about that. And finally, in your opinion, what do you think would be the next steps to continue on from this research? Yeah, well, as as you can t- tell from the paper, this research was done a little while ago, and it got rather delayed by COVID, as I suppose a lot of people's research has done. And in the meantime, quite a few things have happened. I think nothing that fundamentally undermines the results of the data, but I think one of the things that has happened is that people have taken a, a more interest in the use of rifampicin in combination in Staph aureus. And there was a large study done um, in the UK, in fact, looking at uh, Staph aureus bacteremia. And that didn't show benefit for the addition of rifampicin. And uh, there has been a couple of meta-analysis, again, which rather point to the fact that maybe in a clinical setting the addition of rifampicin is not necessary. Now, the reason we added rifampicin is was that the data up to then had often used rifampicin. It was often used in clinical practice. And some of these preclinical uh, modelling experiments in animals and, and sort of in the laboratory had showed benefit. And we, for example, showed in our, an infection model that minocycline plus rifampicin was equivalent to vancomycin. So I think, I think as I say, maybe like a lot of preclinical findings, um, when you look closely at clinical data, it doesn't quite look the same. And um, so I would say, well, 
can we get to a situation where actually we just use a tetracycline on its own? And in fact, there is an oral tetracycline in drug development that's been licensed in the US now, where people looked at IV tetracycline versus oral and, and then oral tetracycline versus IV linazolid and oral linazolid, and that showed non-inferiority. So for my, uh, my thoughts really are, well, can we just use uh, tetracycline on its own. The other thing I think to think about is which tetracycline. And minocycline can cause some toxicity and some issues which perhaps doxycycline doesn't, although minocycline is actually more microbiologically active and that's why we picked it. So I think if I was going to do this again, which I'm not sure you're asking me that or not, but if I was, I would rethink about using a tetracycline, maybe doxycycline on its own in a very much sort of similar uh, design of study. So I, I think for me, that would be um, a useful next step to take. Thank you for that. That's a brilliant way to end the podcast. So thank you, Professor McGowan, for sharing your time and your insights into this issue today. It's obviously a really important topic and we hope to see continuing research in this area like you've talked about. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With eClinical Medicine wherever you usually get your podcasts.